So have you ever needed to cut someone off? No. Not during the sermon, okay? All right? Let's just be clear. We're not talking about uh, cutting somebody off in traffic on I-26. That's not the kind of cutting off we're talking about. We're not talking about having the Academy Award music cued on your phone so that if you end up in a conversation you don't like, that you just start playing the music for them to leave and, and walk away. No, we're talking about when you're in a conversation and you actually really do need to interrupt. How do you politely interrupt someone when you're talking with them? I came across a few tips, an article from Inc.com. It said you can ask for permission to jump in, you know, where you say, excuse me, can I interrupt just, you know, just for a second? It says you can apologize for the interruption. I, I'm so sorry, can can I just interrupt just, just for a moment? Or you can interrupt by bringing something relevant to the conversation. Hey, since we're on that topic, let me just share this. Or even before the conversation starts, you can try to make sure that you kind of set some ground rules. I'm, I'm just going to wait and hold my questions to the end. There's a French-Canadian businessman. He noted that you might also have to adapt your interruption to the culture that you are in. Sylvain Barrette said this, with French people, everyone is talking at the same time. It's almost normal for us to interrupt each other. As for Germans, you have to wait for the verb at the end of the sentence. It's very impolite to interrupt a German, especially in German. That's, That's good grammatical information for us to know, right? We need to know that. You two might tell us to Achtung, baby, on that one. Make sure we're paying attention. Sorry, out of that. Only four of you got that, and that's okay. And thank you for the courtesy laugh. You know, sometimes you don't have to have a polite cultural way to interrupt a conversation, right? Sometimes it just happens naturally. The, the interruption, it just, it just comes. Today, we're going to look at maybe the most famous interruption that's ever happened. The most famous moment where someone has been cut off. But it's so natural that you can almost just kind of read by it. You can almost miss it. But you can't miss what happens on the other side of the interruption. Now, on the other side of this interruption is something that we find that is so rich and so valuable, so amazing, that some of you this morning, you need what's on the other side of this interruption. In fact, your heart and your mind and your soul this morning, you're longing to have what's on the other side of this interruption. So where do we find this interruption? Well, we find it in a story. Jesus is telling a story. He's telling a parable to a crowd of people. And his story is about a son that goes to his father and demands his inheritance early. Wants his money early. And so with arrogance and really a hateful attitude towards family, he takes his money and he takes off for a far country. He goes to live the life he always wanted to live. And it wasn't just any old life. It was a wild life. It was an extravagant life. And it was a heavily immoral life. But his life didn't last too long out there at that speed. In a short amount of time, he blew through all of his money. It was a lot of money. He blew through all of it with his extravagance. And he found himself helpless and homeless and hungry. 
He took a job feeding pigs. But that didn't really help that much because he was still starving to death. And then one day he's standing in the pig pen. And he came to his senses. He he suddenly realized how arrogant and how awful he had been. He suddenly realized how, how sinful and how rude and how unloving he had been to his dad. Yeah, he got his money. He lived his life. He went and had the cool life he thought he always wanted, but that life turned out to be a lie. And really it turned out to be a dead end. And now he found himself completely desperate. And in this moment of desperation, in this moment when he came to his senses, he suddenly realized the only thing he could do, the only place he could go was home. He was going to have to pull himself up out of this dark life that he had created, and he was going to have to make his way home. The place that he couldn't wait to get out of. The people he couldn't wait to get away from. The place that he hoped he never had to go back to. Suddenly he realized it was the only place he could go. He had no other hope. So he came up with a plan. He was going to go home, and he was going to beg his father just for a day laborer job. He figured, and he was so desperate, he thought, well, if I go for for a job and just ask for the one-day job, if I could just get the one-day day laborer job, I'll get enough money probably to buy enough bread to to maybe last me at least a week. He, He was desperate. So that's his plan, but there's a problem with his plan. See, in ancient times, because of what he did, Going back home meant that as he got to the gates of the village, there might be a mob, and they weren't coming to welcome him home. They were coming to protest that he came back home. They might even be so angry that they might try to stone him to death. See, in taking his father's inheritance and and running away, he didn't just spit in the face of his father. He really spit on the whole community, their whole way of life. He dishonored all of them. So yeah, they weren't going to welcome him home. But he was desperate, really desperate. So knowing he was going to be ashamed, knowing he was going to be embarrassed, knowing that he was going to be verbally abused and maybe even physically abused and very much rejected, he starts making his way home. And before he even got into the city gates, the strangest thing happened saw his dad. And and his dad was running to meet him. His dad, with, with everything that he had, was running as fast as he could to meet him. Remember, this is the son that stood in front of his father and basically said, you know, I wish you were dead, because if you were dead, then I could get my money. It's coming to me. This is the son that was hateful toward his dad, hateful toward his family, He abandoned the family home. He abandoned the family business. This was the son that ran off to to live a wild, immoral life. This was the son, the, the hateful, the arrogant, the wicked black sheep of the family. And yet the father runs to meet him. The father's the one guy in town that has a lot of valid reasons 
for hating his son's guts, for, for rejecting him, for having nothing to do with him, and yet he's the one that's running to welcome him home. He grabbed his son, he hugged him, sobbed on his shoulder, he kissed his cheek over and over. He was, he was so ecstatic, he was so overwhelmed to see his son. And how did his son respond to his father's welcome? Jesus continues the story in Luke 15, verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He knew his father couldn't receive him back like nothing had ever happened. He knew that wasn't going to happen. He knew how bad he had been. So he thought, I'm going to prepare a speech, and, and maybe my speech will at least get me a job. Maybe I can get a job and, and just get a, a little bit of food. But, he, but it wasn't just any old prepared speech. See, he knew how much he had dishonored his father. And so in his speech, in what he was going to say, he made it clear that he understood he had dishonored his father so much that he couldn't even be called his son. Just think through that in maybe our day and time. Imagine that you do something so awful, something so terrible to your family that you would go through the steps to legally change your name because you realize how much shame you had brought on your family and you don't want them to have to be connected to you. He's not coming home for a handout. He's not coming home with a chip on his shoulder. He's not coming home blaming people for everything that's going on in his life. He's not coming home thinking that he deserves to be accepted or that he deserves to be forgiven. No, he's coming home broken. He's coming home desperate. He's coming home knowing that his father shouldn't claim to know him and definitely should not claim him as a son. Now, he's broken and he's repentant. In fact, he's so broken and he's so repentant, he's not even feeling the hug. He's not even feeling that his father is, is wrapping him up, that his father is crying on his shoulder. He's so full of humble repentance that, that he can't process what's going on. He just knows he needs to get his, his speech out. So he, he just immediately starts spitting out his speech. Have you ever prepared a speech or prepared something to say and, and you had it all together and then the moment came that you were supposed to give the speech or supposed to say something and it didn't go as planned? This is kind of how it went with my proposal to my wife. I had a great speech. It was fantastic. Great speech, great plan. I mean, it was all put together. Riverboat dinner cruise at night on the Arkansas River. I mean, it's fantastic. We're up on the top deck. Nobody else is up there. And I mean, I, I have my hand in my pocket on the ring box. I mean, this is like just getting ready to happen. And I, I mean, I, had it every, I knew exactly what I was going to say all together. Mm. I've been trying to do this for two weeks, too. I kept, you know, trying to find ways, and it didn't work. And then I was like, oh. No, this is it, this is it. And as I started, literally, as I started to pull the box out of my pocket, our friend, one of the funniest people I've ever known, W.A. Tucker, came up on the top deck. And all of a sudden, I just hear from across the boat, hey, hey, lovebirds. <laughs> I forgot everything I had ever learned in my life in that moment. I just kind of froze and and. Every part of whatever I was going to say just like disappeared. 
And I, I just didn't know what to do. But I was determined to propose that night. So a few hours later, I did. And, and I don't remember what I said. I remember what she said, which is good, but, but I don't remember what I said. And, and I still to this day don't remember any part of that very good prepared speech that I put together. I, I don't know what I was going to say. This son, boy, he, he had it all planned out. He's, he's had maybe days and weeks walking around to, to work through his speech over and over again. And then the moment comes. He's before his dad. He's prepared. He's planned. But that speech began way back in the pigsty. So his first draft that he's been working on all this time, it sounded like this. Luke 15, verse 18. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he's been rehearsing it. He's, he's got it down pat. But notice when his dad is giving him a big, huge bear hug, something gets left out of the speech. It's, it's that last part. See, when he's standing before his dad, this is what he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He, he left out the hired man part. When he actually got there, he, he left out this kind of important part of his speech of, of what he was really going there for, to, to ask for a job. Why did he leave it out? We don't know. I mean, it's, just, it's just how Jesus tells the story. And, and this is, it's a parable, okay? It's, it's not a federal statute. It's not a doctoral dissertation. It's, it's a parable. It's a, a real-life scenario with a real-life truth that anybody anywhere can understand and apply to their lives. So we don't know why he left off the part about the hired man. And we want to be careful about chasing it down too much, you know. We don't want to create the hired man Baptist church where we are committed to the tradition of preserving the original draft from the pig pen. Yes, that's the one that we're preserving. Now, we don't want to chase stuff too far, but, but a parable does have a purpose, and so let's try to use the parable itself as a way just to enjoy the fact that the hired man part got omitted. And why did it possibly get omitted? Listen to verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. So the son's giving his prepared speech, and it's almost like the father interrupts him. He, he cuts him off. He, he doesn't do it with some, you know, polite cultural sensitivity. It's just he's so overwhelmed with his love. His love just kind of cuts his son off, just kind of interrupts everything that he was going to say. He doesn't need a prepared speech. He's not looking for an apology. He's, he's not waiting for his son to say, oh, you know, Dad, please forgive me. No, he's running with love. He already knew his son was ashamed and repentant. How do you know that? His son came home. I mean, the last place this son would have come was home if he had not truly repented in his heart. No way he's coming home to deal with the shame and the abuse and the protest of the mob. No way he's coming home to listen to his dad or his older brother lecture him and say, yeah, we, we told you this was going to happen. Now, there's no way he goes back home 
unless he's repented. He's fully aware of the shame that was waiting at home. He's not going there for anything unless he has repented. So in this moment, it's almost like the son saying, Dad, look, I, I sinned against God. I sinned against, against you. I'm not worthy for you to even treat me or talk to me as if I'm your son. I just, I want to beg you for, for just a one-day job. And even, even if that job just, you know, maybe it just like, and then his dad cuts him off. It's like his father is saying, sure, sure, whatever, whatever. Mr. Belvedere, Hazel, I need y'all to go to the house. Get me my Oxford tuxedo. I want you to bring it here. I want you to put it on my son. He cuts him off because he's overflowing with love. He's, he's not listening to his prepared speech. He's showing him grace. He's showing him mercy. He's showing him love. His son is dirty. He's nasty. He smells like pigs. He probably weighs you know, buck ten. I mean, it's just this is, this is not the son that left. And yet he tells his servants, I want you to go get my best clothes and, and put those clothes on my boy. It's not just his tuxedo. Listen to verse 22 again. Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Best robe. This would have been something that was, that was custom made for a special occasion, like his oldest son's wedding. So he tells his servants, go get my best clothes and, and come put them on my son. And, and then he goes a step further. He says, go get a ring. This, this would be almost like, like a signet ring, like the, the family crest ring. You know, in ancient times, it might be the, the kind of ring that you would, you know, put in the wax on the back of a, a sealed envelope, an important document, and let everybody know that, that you were part of this family, you were an official of this family, you had authority in this family. And so that ring would have let the son know from the father, you are fully privileged to be my son. I'm taking nothing away from you. And then he says, go get, go get my, my best sandals and put, put them on his feet. This might have been a way for the, the father to say, yeah, I was kind of hearing your thing there about the hired man thing. But see, the, the hired folks probably didn't have shoes. So he was letting his son know, you are not a hired man. You are my son. And so it wasn't just the tuxedo. It wasn't just the best ring. It wasn't just his brand new Kohans. No, there was a whole other thing that this father is trying to do. He is taking everything to the extreme. Listen to verse 23. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. This would have been enough barbecue for the whole town. You know? This wasn't a small thing. This, this wasn't a little smallish wedding no, he wanted the entire town to come home because his arrogant, stubborn, selfish, wicked, immoral, rebellious son came home. And he wanted to celebrate the best robe, the best ring, the best sandals, the best feast. Bring it all, my son's home. Stephen Cole, he unpacks 
with clarity the, the father's actions toward his son in, in just great, great detail. And so I'm just going to kind of let his outline uh, preach to us just for a few minutes. First, with, with seven ways the father showed love to his son. Okay, seven ways. Here's the first one. Relinquishment without rejection. He gave him his inheritance. He let him have the money. He relinquished the money to him, and then he relinquished him to go. He let him go to go live the life that he wanted to live. He relinquished him, but he did not reject him. He didn't disown him. He didn't write him out of the will as soon as the son left the house. Tim Cole says this, As a child nears adulthood, the parent is not acting in love if he refuses to let go and attempts to control every aspect of the young person's life. Relinquishing without rejecting. The second way he showed love to his son is with deep concern. Imagine the father sitting at the breakfast joint one morning with his coffee buddies. And they're talking to the fool. And, and one of the guys says, hey, you heard anything about that youngest, youngest boy of yours? And the father says, you know what? I've said it once and I'll say it again. When it comes to that son of mine, I got two words. Good riddance. He could have said that. But he didn't. He wasn't at the coffee joint with his brothers in the morning. No, he, he was out by the gate, undoubtedly, every day looking and longing and praying that his son would come home, that he would see him on the horizon. No, there was deep concern for his boy. Spouses and parents and teenagers, listen to this next quote very closely. Stephen Cole says, the father did not protect his hurt feelings by hardening his heart. He did not protect his hurt feelings by hardening his heart. Just so you know, this is what we do. We get our feelings hurt by our spouses. We get our feelings hurt by our parents. We get our feelings hurt by our kids. And rather than turn to the God who saves and redeems and loves us and runs to us, we keep those hurt feelings and we harden our hearts. We do it far more often than we want to admit. This father, he showed deep concern. He didn't let his hurt feelings harden his heart. He still was concerned for his boy. His heart had a completely different response. The third way he loved his son was with heartfelt compassion. Can't you just see this? His dirty, smelly, nasty boy coming down the lane toward town. I mean, wouldn't it be somewhat natural for the father to say, don't be coming in here looking like that. You, you go out there and go get yourself cleaned up. Get those piercings out. Cover up those tattoos with some halfway decent clothes. And then maybe, maybe I might let you in the house. That's not what he does. Rather than shame him, rather than yell and scream a lecture at him, that father sees how broken and nasty his son is, and it breaks his heart with compassion for his boy. 
He loved him with concern. He loved him with compassion. And he loved him with outward affection. He could have done this. He could have, could have stood at the town gate with his arms crossed. Could have stood at the front door with his arms crossed and just stared that boy down. Come on, dads, we've done this before. I've done it. You know, just the stare. He didn't do that. No, he, he ran to him and, and hugged him. Outward affection. Mothers and fathers, I'll add spouses, regardless of your age as a parent, be sure that you are showing godly outward affection to your kids. Find ways to do it even today. He loved him with outward affection. He loved him with unaffected humility. I mean, here's the old man, you know, hiking up his robe, tucking it in his belt and running like a servant boy as fast as he can. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks about what he's doing. He only cares about going and showing love to his son. He's humble. Number six, he serves him with undeserved generosity. Really, this dad, he's going way too far. He is, he's going way too far. The son does not deserve any of this. He doesn't deserve the welcome. He doesn't deserve the hug. He doesn't deserve the robe or the ring or the sandals or the feast. He doesn't deserve any of it. He deserves the opposite of all of it. But this father, he's showing his son rich grace. Now, does that mean there's no consequences for sin? Does that mean that we should just always turn a a blind eye to our rebellious kids? A blind eye to rebellious family member and friends? A blind eye to to people who continue to to rob or steal or just never fall out of their addictive habits? Are Are we just supposed to ignore all of that? No, not necessarily. Godly wisdom sometimes tells us that we need to say no. And we need to say no more. And we need to say, I'm sorry, you have to leave. And you can't come back until there's change. But every situation requires prayerful eyes that are looking on the moment, looking on the person, looking on the situation and saying, God, help me see how your word wants me to act right now. If there's no true shame and no true repentance, all of the mercy that we pour on people will just be band-aids that never stick. There has to be shame. There has to be repentance. But we can't control that. And so as believers, what we do is we do everything we can as God leads us to show undeserved generosity. We keep showing mercy over and over again. Stephen Cole says this, My guess is that most Christian parents err on the side of being overly stern. Our kids ought to be able to understand God's grace because we have been gracious toward them. And then he asked this question. Are you as gracious with your kids as God is with you? Hmm. Ouch, right? But yet this is the pattern we've been called to. Undeserved generosity. And then seventh, the father loved him with undeserved acceptance. 
He didn't ground him. He didn't put him on probation. No, he, he loved him. He accepted him. I saw an interesting quote a couple of weeks ago in an article from the Denver Post from someone named Colleen O'Connor. She said this about an apology. The successful apology dissolves anger and humiliation. It shows respect, builds trust, and helps prevent further misunderstanding. A sincere apology makes it much easier to forgive. This father saw his boy walking home, and he knew his repentance was sincere. He knew there's no way his boy comes back home knowing what he would face unless he was sincere. And that sincere repentance moved and drove this father to be eager to forgive his son. And what did his forgiveness look like? There's seven sides of that too. First, his forgiveness was immediate. He didn't snarl at his boy. He didn't say, you know what, fine, come on in. You know what, I'll forgive you when I'm good and ready. No. No, he immediately forgave his son. With compassion, he embraced him. His forgiveness was also total. It's a great picture here. With, with every tear, with every hug, with every kiss on the cheek, the father was saying to his son, this prodigal story is over. It's over. It's total forgiveness. Third, his forgiveness was forgotten. Clara Barton founded the American Red Cross. A friend of hers came up one time and reminded her of this moment where someone had wronged her. And Clara Barton looked at her friend and she appeared as if she had no idea what she was talking about. And the friend said, don't you remember that? And Clara Barton said, no, I distinctly remember forgetting that. That's a hard one. His forgiveness forgot. Number four, his forgiveness was costly. Stephen Cole said this. When you forgive, you bear the cost of what the other person did. And then that person goes free. If he bears the cost, that is justice. If you bear it, that is forgiveness. If you get nothing else this morning outside the scriptures, get those last two sentences. If he bears the cost, that is justice. If you bear it, that is forgiveness. The father was bearing the cost. He was bearing the shame of what his son had done. Cole goes on to say this. The father did not have a martyr complex. Look at what you've put me through, boy. He did not demand pity. Look at how much you've hurt me. He simply absorbed the son's wrongs. That's costly. Fifth, his forgiveness was restorative. He didn't restore the money he had wasted, all right? He didn't say, oh, you know, I, I tell you, I'm just going to write your check for that amount and let's just, let's just take care of your inheritance again. No, he wasn't restoring the money. But he was restoring to this son the full rights and privileges of being his son. He wanted to know, son, you're home and I love you. He was restoring the relationship, the 
Father, who had done no wrong, he restored the relationship. Six, his forgiveness was not the guilt-blame approach. Sometimes people act like they forgive you, and then they hang a scorecard of your sin, you know, like up in the bathroom or in the hall, you know, somewhere where you always have to look at it. That's, that's not real forgiveness. No, the, the father, he really forgave his son. The, the story was over. He was moving on. And then the seventh way that he showed forgiveness was it was active. It was not passive. Active, not passive. Why is he throwing a barbecue for the whole town? I mean, why is he going to all this trouble? Why is he, he bringing out the best of everything to put on his son? Because his love and his forgiveness were not just words. He didn't just text, I forgive you, buddy. No, he was actively living out his forgiveness with love. Joseph Bailey was an author a business executive. He worked for years with Christian publishers like David C. Cook and, and InterVarsity. Stephen Cole tells this story about Joseph Bailey. I once heard him tell how one of his sons rebelled back in the days of the hippie movement. He grew his hair long and moved into a communal flop house. Late one night, he received a call informing him that his son was being held at one of the Chicago police stations. He got out of bed, got dressed, and went down to the station, but they had no record of his son being there. He made the rounds to several police stations before he realized that the call had been a prank. Even though it was about 2 a.m. before he went home, Bailey went to the flop house where his son was living. He went in, the door was always unlocked, stepped over several sleeping bodies strewn on the floor, and found his son asleep on his bed. He gently bent over and kissed his son on the cheek before he went home to bed. When Bailey told the story, he said that his son was now a pastor. Years later, the young man told his father, Dad, do you know what turned me around? And Bailey said, No, I don't, son. His son said, it was that night you came into my room and kissed me. You thought that I was asleep, but I wasn't. I thought if my dad loves me that much, I had better get my life right with God. Maybe today you are that father or that mother, or that spouse of a prodigal. And I would just plead with you, step over whatever you have to step over and kiss that prodigal on the cheek for the glory of God, for the salvation of their soul, and for the good of your soul. Step over, step over, step over. Or maybe you're the prodigal son. Or maybe you're the prodigal daughter. Or maybe you're the prodigal spouse. And I would just say this. Do whatever you have to to get your life right with God.
Do whatever you have to. You see, the the story of the cross is a story that tells us that God sent His Son to be crucified for our sin, our penalty. He took on our punishment. Really just for one reason. And that reason is to let us know that God loves you that much.